My name is Benjamin Mueller, and you're listening to the Forge Leadership Podcast. Forge Leadership Network mentors, trains, and connects young conservatives ages 18 to 25, equipping them to lead in politics, culture, and business. For more information or to get involved, visit forgeleadership.org. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me, and it's an honor to speak with all of you. I was asked to talk about some of my insights in building organizations, and I've been at ADF for two years in round numbers, and it's a 25-year-old organization, and so it was pretty large. In fact, it was very large uh, when I got here, and it's a little bit larger now, and so I'm really not going to draw particularly on that component of my experience, at least initially. I'm glad to answer questions about it, and uh, I I think ADF is doing such great work that I was willing to leave what I had been doing before, partly also because I I believe that the other things that I had launched were in great hands, and so I felt free to leave because I didn't think that they would go backwards. In fact, I thought they would thrive in a new season with uh, leadership that was already in place, and that. Uh, and I still play a, a backup, kind of very minor role in both organizations. Uh, mainly, I'm on on the board. But I want to talk to you, I, I guess, principally about starting things, particularly Patrick Henry College and HSLDA, both of which I was the founding president. Now, I I started other things in my life, some of them more successful than others. I I started the Moral Majority of Washington State back in 1980. I started uh, a newspaper recycling business in the 70s that went uh, belly up, and uh, it had a great name. It was called Use News, but that was about the only good thing from it. Uh, the, The rest of it didn't work all that well. But the two things that I started that were have long time staying power and have become they will clearly outlive me uh, are homeschool legal defense and Patrick Henry College, and so there are you know five kind of observations that I'd like to share with you about starting those things and and the first two are uh, I think in combination constitute at least from my perspective what what vision is about. People have called me a visionary, and I guess that's true in some sense, but you know, it, to me it seems much more ordinary than something that has such an exalted title associated with it. Because it's really just two things. One is I saw problems in the homeschooling context. My wife and I began homeschooling in the early 80s, and Right away, because I was somewhat of a public figure in the north, in the Pacific Northwest, we lived in Washington State at the time, and because of my work with Moral Majority and its successor organization, which is called Bill of Rights Legal Foundation, I, you know, was known, especially among Christian circles, and so other homeschoolers found out that, it, you know, this Christian lawyer with this constitutional background was homeschooling, so I started getting a whole lot of questions about the legality of homeschooling. And I figured out really pretty quick, this is a great way to grow broke because when people want a Christian lawyer, what they really want is a free lawyer. And I I knew that that was unsustainable. And so I I saw a need. People want to homeschool. They're afraid about the legal issues. 
And I found a solution that would allow me to both help individuals and bring big changes to the landscape that would ultimately produce victorious solutions for the whole category of people that wanted help. And so that combination of seeing a problem, seeing, trying to find a solution that is not just for an individual, but it is helping the individual. So if you, if you're not helping individuals with your big solution, that something's wrong with your concept of what constitutes a big solution. But it's got to be done in a way that's scalable, in a way that will help a lot of people and will enable you to have the, the bandwidth and the mechanism and the team and the resources it takes to deliver that, that victory. And so the basic idea of HSLDA was to form what amounts to a, a teacher's union for homeschoolers. And Everybody paid, I think that initially was $60 a year, but shortly it would change to $100 a year. And it was like $100 a year for like 20 years. I think it's like 120 now or something like that. So a very modest amount of money. And then for that, you get free legal help. And and so the first year, there were a few hundred people that joined. And fortunately, I had employment. Initially with the Bill of Rights group, but then Bev and Tim LaHaye hired me to do Concerned Women for America uh, and run their Washington office. And so I was running HSLDA on my hip pocket with the LaHaye's permission in my spare time while I ran their D.C. office. And then HSLDA grew to a point I started hiring staff. And then after about four years, I hired myself uh, and, and left CWA. And so by... That combination of, you know, helping individual families with, with individual problems, but building a mechanism that allowed it to scale in a big way worked very well. And after, you know, four years or so, there was a few thousand members, and then, you know, it just kept growing. Now, it's been pretty stable for a long time because the perceived need of HSLDA is, is not as strong as it was. I, there's still a need, uh, and it fulfills a big role, and there's about 80 full-time staff, and it's about a... 11, 12 million dollar a year organization, something in that in that range, and it's, you know still has a lot of work to do. But the acute issue of it's just not legal to homeschool any place in the country has been solved. It doesn't mean it will remain solved forever, and that's you know an, an interesting another subject for another day, perhaps. But I was able to um, reach what what um, what I've become. What I've come to call a generational win, and that is we took on a problem that was bad everywhere. I mean, if you'd ask all 50 state attorney generals, is it legal to homeschool kids in your state, whether they got the right answer or not, or whether they liked the answer or not, all 50 in the early 80s would have said, no, it's not legal to homeschool here. If you do the same thing today, you ask all 50 attorney generals, and again, whether they like the answer or not, they would say, yes, it's legal to homeschool in our state. That's a generational win, and it was done against all odds. The teachers' union is the most powerful group in every state legislature, and yet we won on a state-by-state basis. We didn't win this at the national level. We stopped some bad stuff at the national level, but we didn't win at the national level. That was done state-by-state, and we... um, we're blessed with victory, which can only be accounted to, to God in the in the ultimate sense. And I can tell you stories to prove that point if anyone wants to uh, hear those. And maybe some point tonight, I, I will tell one of them. But 
the um, so I've kind of synthesized three basic points and just to summarize them, you got to see the problem, you got to help individuals, and then you do so in a way that's designed to help others uh, on a scalable fashion with that achieves an ultimate or you know, large society-wide kind of win. Now, in the process of doing that, we built a coalition of those who are affected by the same issue. And that is what, that's the, that coalition building is the essence of getting the resources that you need. Now, sometimes you build coalitions of very wealthy people. You can build an organization that way. ADF has been more in that model, uh, although there's a lot of small donors that are essential to its success. Uh, the vast majority of its money comes from several hundred people that give you know, five, six, seven figures a year, and and so that's that's a very successful model. A lot of a lot of organizations run that way. HSLDA, on the other hand, ninety five percent of it mo its money comes from a hundred dollars a year from families, and so that's a true grassroots, very level kind of a, a model. But somehow or another, you've got to build a coalition of those who b believe in that the problem needs to be solved. And that you've got a plan to do it, and that you're a leader with integrity, and and you get results. So if you believe all those things, then people will uh, come around you and support what you're doing. Now, I, I think that that really kind of covers a lot of the uh, you know, on the HSLDA side of things, at least. Um, kind of there's a legal side of what we did and the political side. But there's another element of what we did with HSLDA, and that is Inspire Families don't actually homeschool their kids. And so I was involved in that in a big way um, as well. And I was just at a meeting for ADF recently, and a family came to me. And as I've, lots of families have come to me, and you know, the dad and mom say, you were the guy that inspired us to try to homeschool our kids, and now our kids are doing this great thing and that great thing and another great thing. and and so it's really encouraging, gratifying. And as I've thought about what, you know, what is going on there, what, what did I do that led people to say those kinds of things to me? And really what it was this is that I presented a, an idea that was actually very hard. And, and I, I never tried to sugarcoat the idea that, uh, and try to make it seem that homeschooling is easy. I tried to present it as a hard thing and and as a worthwhile thing. In fact, so worthwhile that it's worth a, a tremendous amount of sacrifice and that it will achieve results that are meaningful, bring both meaning to their own life and to for eternity. I mean, it, it changes eternal destinies. It, you know, it's a, it is a big goal and a big thing and it's a hard thing to do and it's worthy and so it's inspiring people um, two of my former students at Patrick Henry College when they were in high school wrote a book called Do Hard Things and some of you may have read that and that was essentially the message that called people into homeschooling and and so building a movement around that I think was really one of the more gratifying things that I've been able to do is to is to inspire people to do those kinds of things. Now, if, if we walk through essentially those same kind of steps, looking at Patrick Henry College, 
there, the problem I was trying to solve was this. I had two groups of people presenting problems to me. One was parents, mostly, and some high school age homeschool kids who kept asking me questions about colleges and saying, you know, where is a college that uh, uses a classical approach in its education? And at that time, there wasn't, you know, they wanted a Christian college, so that was good. Within the world of Christian colleges, who has a classical kind of approach and really didn't exist then. Uh, now, there's a couple of schools that have come on since then that I could answer that have joined that rank. But there's only still about four. And then I get uh, questions that, you know, where is the college that uses the apprenticeship methodology, which is really uh, popular among homeschooling circles. And, and I also thought that uh, I, I spent, used to spend a lot of time with Switzerland as the, their terminology as a vice president. Our American terminology, I was the assistant, the vice chairman of the board of a Swiss-based Christian human rights organization. And in Switzerland, 75% of the people never go to high school, including the presidents of the largest banks in the world and insurance companies and all kinds of things. You finish basically the ninth grade and or tenth grade, perhaps. The other system is a little different than ours. But you don't go to high school and you don't go to college because you go to work for a company and they have an apprenticeship program that lasts about four or five years. And that apprenticeship program is part-time in the classroom and then part-time on the job. And, of course, it's produced one of the best economies in the world and has people in very high-paying jobs and very successful businesses. And so between people's admiration of the founding era and the and the, the apprenticeship methodology was common then, and then there's the modern Swiss example, apprenticeship as a methodology is very popular in homeschooling in circles. And so I got questions about that. And then in combination, classics and apprenticeship, that didn't exist. And you put that inside the context of a Christian college, it really didn't exist. And so people were looking for this cluster of attributes, and after about 4,000 4, times saying, I don't think there is a college like that, it it became pretty apparent to me that there was an opportunity to create something where there was a real need, and people perceived the need. That was the important thing. You can think there's a need all along. Unless people perceive the need, it is much more difficult. In fact, it's not until impossible to start something where there's no perceived need. And uh, but the, the second group of questions I was getting were from members of Congress who were saying, you know, Mike, do you have a sharp homeschooler that can, can hire for my staff? And what I knew that they really wanted was somebody who was smart and who shared their values. That was, you know, sharp was smart, homeschooler was shorthand for shares my values. And I'd seen a lot of kids go to a lot of colleges and having worked with a lot of staffers over the years, I saw a whole lot of instances where people thought they were hiring somebody with their values because they went to school X or school Y, and they really didn't share their values. And they were betraying the, the elected member behind their backs often. And so I saw a perceived need there so that there was a market for what our, our graduates are going to do. And, you know, put those things together and talked about the effect of liberal college education on the country that inspired donors and you know we, we we solved the problem for individuals, kids who wanted to do, you know, these kinds of things, pursue this kind of education and and we talked 
and told people that it, it was going to work and produce great results. And we've, we've done well. You know, on the academic side, the external proof of our work came well, our Moot Court program has always kind of been the lead thing. We've won 10 national championships in 17 years and won second a bunch of other years and won one world world championship in addition to that. Like, and that one was against law schools. The national championships are all against other undergraduate schools. And and then our, our kids got started getting admitted to top law schools. You know, one time recently we had seven at Harvard and all of them were on law review and four no, I guess five are have clerked to the U.S. Supreme Court or are going, two of them are going to clerk next year for the Supreme Court. And so that kind of external validation, and we have a strong strategic intelligence program, and they keep getting hired at the you know, top, at the CIA and the FBI and by private contractors and so on in the intelligence world. And you know, we just have a really high reputation in that world. And so that kind of external validation helps sustain what's going on. But, again, we were trying to solve a problem in a way that helped individuals and it was scalable for for a great number of people and inspired people to do hard things. It's a very tough curriculum at PhD, but with the idea that it matters and it matters for the country, it matters for the individual, and it has long-range impact. So... Those are really pretty much common elements of um, what we're, we were doing, and I've learned a lot of things and, and believe that, frankly, because of many of those lessons is why God called me to go come to ADF, because what I'm trying to do at ADF now is to build a coalition of leaders that will scale out to grassroots operations that will allow us to not defend religious freedom, but to win the issue, not defend right to uh, life, but to reverse row, reverse the state laws that don't protect life, build a culture of life, and actually save babies to abundant life. And, and, you know, so that they're living great lives and not just, you know, we don't just save save the babies and then turn them into, you know, desperate existence. You know, if we're really going to do the thing right, we've got to inspire the Christian community to come alongside people and help inspire and enable people to really live high-quality as God would call it, abundant lives. And, you know, obviously that means evangelistic efforts have to be built into all that. So coming to, to that kind of a generational win in those issues is what I'm about to do, what I'm trying to do now and trying to build the mechanism to uh, deliver those kind of victories and uh, other generational wins in the five areas that ADF is, is all about, which is right to life, freedom of speech, free exercise of religion, parental rights and marriage and gender issues so we're, that's where we're, where we're going and what we're doing and I think I'm probably done and... thank you for listening to the Forge Leadership Podcast if you liked the show please drop a review in our podcast app and be sure to subscribe for all our latest episodes. You can follow Forge Leadership Network at Forge Leadership on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more information about Forge programming, please visit forgeleadership.org.